Let's get into the word and start with prayer. Father, we love you so much. And God, I, I don't just start my prayer with you because that's a religious thing to say or something I should say, but Father, it is something that I honestly feel and I know that my brothers and sisters do as well. Hearts full of gratitude for what you have done, what you are doing, what you will do. Worship of who you are. God, we adore you. We love you. Father, we want our lives to display, to demonstrate that for your glory. We pray that as we get into the word, God, that you will open our hearts, that we will learn from you, that we will be forever changed by it as we apply the things in your word. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week we looked at Revelation chapter 16. How many of you were here last week? So you know we went through the bowls or vials of wrath being poured out, right? And now we are going into chapter 17, and we're going to try to get through this whole chapter this evening. The truth is that you could do one message on just one or two verses at a time, right? This could take a long time, but we're going to look at kind of a 30,000-foot survey of this chapter, but really concentrate on the parts that I feel like God has laid on my heart. So in chapters 17 and 18, we read about spiritual Babylon. And what's interesting about Babylon is it now means something, it symbolizes something, but you know that it was a literal place, right? You guys remember the story about the Tower of Babel, Right? The Tower of Babel. The word Babel is Bob for gate, El for God. So on one hand, the the word uh, Babel means the gate of God or gate to God. But there's also a second meaning. This word has a dual meaning, and that is confusion. It's very interesting, but the gate of God and confusion. In fact, this chapter has so many things that contrast with one another. And so we're gonna take a look at that. Um, The Tower of Babel, you remember Nimrod, right? Nimrod, the mighty hunter, and that's not just a hunter of animals, but of humans. He was against God. He was not for God. There is um, a historical uh, story that Nimrod was uh, married or the husband of a woman named Simaris, and that she, after Nimrod died, she had an experience where she had a miraculous birth. This is Babylonian religion. She had a miraculous birth. In other words, uh, it was a counterfeit with Mary and Jesus. She had a miraculous birth overshadowed by their deity. She gave birth to a child named Tammuz, who was killed by a wild beast and 40 days later resurrected. So this is a Babylonian myth, right, that has been told, stories that have been told. And in fact, they still have artifacts today that point to her in sort of a Madonna-type way. 
And in Babylon or Babel, in that whole area, there was, it was rife with pantheism, which is the worship of many gods, as well, specifically, you guys know the god Baal or Baal, you've heard of him, right? A Babylonian god. Not only did it symbolize pantheism, but just idolatry in general. And we see Babylon mentioned over and over again, right? You heard of Nebuchadnezzar. You, heard, you know of it from the, uh, Daniel. You know of the Jewish exile to Babylon. So we see Babylon mentioned over 280 times in the scriptures. In fact, it is mentioned more often than any other city except for Jerusalem. And again, we see this contrast between the city of God and this city of idolatry. So we see this comparison and contrast all the way through chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation. We're just concentrating on 17 tonight. And the truth is that the city that expressed hostility against God also made attempt for man to reach heaven and reach perfection without God, and that was the Tower of Babel. And they carried on that idea that man didn't need Jehovah God, didn't need Yahweh, that man could take care of himself, that man could achieve some sense of worth and perfection and enlightenment apart from God. So the very idea of it was idolatrous. The pantheistic uh, practices were idolatrous. And so Babylon became known throughout history to represent this idea of idolatry. And it certainly exemplifies that in the book of Revelation. In chapter 17, Babylon and the harlot, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, represents false religions, religion of the world system, a religious world system or a global religion. And chapter 18 will focus on economic and uh, militaristic globalism as well as commercial globalism. So we see that Babylon is representing something other than just a city. It's really representing idolatry and an absolute force against God, the things of God, or the plans of God. Now when we say religion, we, uh, you know, the world puts all different faiths into a category called religion. That is not what we do as Christians. Christianity is different and unique from all other faiths, right? So we don't consider ourselves a religion. When you're filling out a form, it may ask what your religion is and include Christianity, but we don't think of it that way. We've heard for years the idea that it's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's not a, a religion, it's redemption, right? We know that, but other people can, they chuck all faiths into this idea of religion. But I want to tell you that tonight what we're going to see is that God hates religion. And what I mean by that is he hates empty religion that lifts up man as God. All right? And we're going to take a look at that. But let's start out by reading in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. 
It says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with him, with me, saying to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her head a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Okay, so we're going to start right there. First of all, what do we see? We see that an angel speaks to John, right? He's the revelator. He's the one who God gave this revelation to of Jesus Christ. The angel speaks to him and he says, I want to show you. Come with me, I'm going to show you the judgment of. So the first thing we see is that uh, John is being pulled away somewhere to see judgment. So right away, we know that, that God is going to, to show us something amazing right here, right? And, and so I want to point out that this counterfeit religion that we're going to see is so offensive to God that he judges it in, in a very severe and specific way. And he ends up using the very thing that this false religion thinks it controls to judge it. And, and that's going to be a lesson for us as we get into this. All right. So one of the angels comes and he talks to me saying, come I will show you. You know what? The Old Testament said, or, or the new, uh, sorry, the King James Version says, come hither and I will show you something. Three times the King James Version or the New King James Version says, come hither or come with me. I want to show you something to John. And in those three times, it's very telling. The first time is in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, where a voice says to John, come up here, and he sees the throne of heaven. The second time here is in Revelation 17. Come with me and see the judgment of the harlot. And the next time is in Revelation 21, where he says, come with me and see the bride of the lamb. Now it's interesting because it's like John is called up, first of all, to see heaven, this is what you're going to. This is what you can expect. This is what you can look forward to. This is what's happening all around you, though you may not see it on a normal basis. This is heaven. And then you see the false bride, the fake bride, religion without relationship. You see that. And then he sees what? The real bride. I don't think that's an accident. I think it's another contrasting thing that God is showing us in this chapter, showing us the false bride, the religion, something that isn't, isn't authentic 
compared to the beauty of the real plan and the beauty that he has for us. So I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. By the way, if I say whore of Babylon instead of harlot of Babylon, uh, if I intermix that, I apologize. I, I know this passage in King James. With who the kings of the earth committed fornication. What is fornication? Fornication is sexual immorality. Any sex outside of the confines of marriage is considered fornication. But he's not necessarily talking about actual physical sexual fornication here. He's talking about spiritual fornication. And you guys know that throughout the word of God that that type of fornication is is that idolatry is often referred to as fornication. I know the places in the Old Testament, right, where he says, you went a-whoring under every green tree. Who was he talking to? He was talking to his children, the Jews, who had decided that they would embrace foreign false gods over him. And so we see this represented in this way. So it's talking about this spiritual fornication, the the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. That means that they had embraced it. They had believed all the false religions. They had accepted it. Then it says, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Where is the wilderness? This is most likely desert. Not the forest like we think of wilderness sometimes, right? It's the desert. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy. So this beast had blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Where, where have we seen that before? Who is this? Seven heads and ten horns. Revelation 13, 1. It's the Antichrist. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. By the way, purple and scarlet fabric were extremely expensive because of the dye was very costly. And so you see this woman sitting on top of this seven-headed beast dressed in colors that represented royalty and military and jewels and pearls and gold and holding a golden cup sitting on top of this scarlet beast. And it says that the cup is filled with the abominations and the filthiness of her fornication, her spiritual immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I don't know if you're aware, but in the time that uh, John was living in, in Rome, very often prostitutes would have their name on their forehead, not tattooed, but written and, and attached possibly to a headband. And so this, this was very clear to John what he was seeing, that this was a prostitute, somebody who uh, represented religion but had prostituted herself 
It says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. I'm going to pause here and talk about this for a little bit because I really feel like it's one of the main points that God has for us tonight. And that is, how did the earth, at the time of the tribulation, how did they get to this point? We have seen right, uh, the, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments poured out. We have seen things ramping up. But now all of a sudden, in chapter 17, we kind of take a little break, and as it describes this harlot riding the beast, it really represents the span of the tribulation period. And you're going to see what I mean in a moment. So during that period of time, the people that remain on the earth during the tribulation have embraced and are embracing this one world religion. How do we get there? How does the earth get there? And I want to tell you, I think it's fairly obvious. I'm not a political person. If you knew me, you would understand And I am not a conspiracy theorist. And if you knew me, you would know that I really am not. (laughs) But I will tell you this. I think it is so obvious to me that we are being, all of the groundwork has been laid for people to begin to accept one world religion and one world economy and one world political obeisance. I I see it happening all around us. I mean, even just with the bumper sticker that says coexist. I want to talk about that for just a minute. You know, uh, as Christians, I believe that we should be tolerant. Let me get all the way through this before you throw something at me. I believe we should be tolerant with the original meaning of that word, which is that you can be different from me and I can accept your difference but I don't have to believe your difference. And I don't have to condone your difference. But I can still respect you. So here's the thing. Uh, I have a doctor who I really, really like, and he is of a different religion. And uh, he and I have some of the best conversations. He teases me about the fact that I'm a Christian, and I tease him back about the fact that, and I'm not going to say because he might be listening. But, (laughs) But I do say this. I say, I love that man. And I can be a friend to him. I can have coffee with him. We can discuss things. And he can fix my, my, my human tent. All right? But here's the, the, the fact is that I love him too much to just take in and believe religious beliefs that I know are contrary to God's word. I love him too much for that. So when we talk, I tell him about Jesus. And then he says, okay, that's too far. I don't want to hear about that. But I know he will. I know he will someday. I I mean, I really believe that. I hope that to be true. And, And I pray that that is true. But what I'm saying is, even with something like coexist, I understand what they meant by that. Maybe, maybe, maybe they meant let's not be ugly to each other. Let's all get along. Maybe they meant that. And I have to say that I agree with that. Let's not be ugly to people. Just because they're different, don't be hateful. You're not gonna win anybody like that. Stop it, right? I I don't want to be that way. I can be kind to people. So coexist from that standpoint, yes. 
But to believe that everybody's truth is true doesn't make sense. It's illogical, and this is the word of God upon which I stand. I believe that. I believe that God wants us to allow people to have the freedom to choose. They have free will, and they can choose God or not choose God. And he wants them to choose him, and I want them to choose him. But I can't force them to choose him because when historically, when religions have tried to force people on the mission field that they must look and act like Christians or Catholics, Protestants, whatever, it has turned into a killing fest. And do you know why? Because you can take someone and you can change the way their hair is cut, you can put a suit on them, you can tell them how to act and which fork to use, but that does not make them a Christian because those changes do not come from the outside in. They come from the inside out. So therefore, people must choose under the unction of the Holy Spirit, the drawing of the Holy Spirit, they choose Jesus. And then they belong to him. So we don't force people. So, so I don't mind. I don't, I don't mind the free will. God didn't mind it. I'm not better than God or no more than God. But you have to see that the world is heading that direction and imagine at the time that we are taken up out of this world during the rapture. The church is removed. Literally all H-E double hockey sticks breaks out on the earth. The remaining people looking for some sense of structure and belonging cling to some belief that contains hope. I can see, remember, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, everybody likes him. Everybody loves him. For the first three and a half years, he has all the answers. He has all the answers, and he looks like a superstar. And, and what this is talking about, I believe, is that first three and a half years of the tribulation period, religion, false religion, this one world global religion, is riding on the back of the Antichrist because it is convenient for her to have her platform moved forward, and it's convenient for him because now he has all of the people that belong to this world religion on his side. But at the three and a half year mark, guess what happens? Or near there, you remember that the Antichrist receives a mortal wound. One of his heads is mortally wounded, this beast, right? So we know that the Antichrist, remember the beast is a symbol. So the Antichrist receives a fatal wound, and then it looks like he resurrects. The world is taken with him. It told us in these previous chapters the world is, is taken with him and they're very impressed with him. And at that point, you're going to see in a moment that global religion, this worldwide religion, is obliterated. God uses the same people who were propping it up to destroy it. Why? Because the Antichrist no longer needs it. Now, he the... the um, abomination of desolation takes place where he goes into the temple and he proclaims himself as God. Everything changes now. He has to get rid of, rid of the world religion. He has to get rid of it at that point. 
right? And so we see how these things work. And, and the groundwork is being set now. And Christians, are we aware? Are we aware that, that there is this idea of going towards one world religion? And are you playing into that? Or do you know what you believe? Do you know what the word of God says? Can you love people and still disagree with them graciously and tell them the truth? I hope so. I hope you're learning to stand up for what the word of God says in a kind way. And I'm hoping that you know that one of these days you true believers are going to be sucked out of the earth, raptured up in the twinkling of an eye. And there are going to be people that are left. And there are going to be people that go through the tribulation period. And it's going to be difficult. But the good news is, is that some, of, some people will still be born again during the tribulation They'll come to know Jesus. And that's what this is talking about right here in verse 6, where it says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. What is this saying? It's saying that this worldwide religion is tolerant of every religion except for one faith. And that's those who proclaim Jesus as Lord. They're martyred. She is, as it were, drinking their blood. So see, that's really interesting, isn't it? How we talk about tolerance, the world talks about tolerance, we've got to tolerate one another. You know, we have a worldwide pandemic, and everybody's supposed to do the same thing, and if you don't do it, you're unkind. Or if you do it, you're weak. There's all this fighting in between, but what is the world telling us? The world is saying, everybody do the same thing. Worldwide. Everybody submit. And I wore a mask, okay? And I have no problem with that. But you see what I'm saying is that the world puts more and more pressure that we should all have a global mindset I want you to know that if you look in the Bible, you study it hard, I want you to find a place in there where God ever says, I want a worldwide leader besides himself. Never. There are local leaders. There are national leaders. But the whole deal with the Tower of Babel is they were trying to raise something to influence the whole world. God said, no. Why? Because if there's one World, I said I'm not political, but I sound it, don't I? But I'm not. If there is one world leader, guess what that is? That's tyranny. That's why God knows that as human beings, we can't have one world leader. It's, it's dictatorial. It's tyranny. He is the only one good enough to be the world leader. So John is amazed. He looks at this with amazement. And he's not amazed in verse 6 because she's great and it's a great scene. He's amazed because her cup holds the blood of the saints. It's, it's a negative amazement. And it says in verse 7, But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Again, who's the beast here? It's the Antichrist. That explains it right there. Did you see that? It says he was and is not, he died, and will ascend 
and then go to perdition. What's that? Eternal judgment. It's, it's describing the Antichrist here. It says, And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. Okay, I'm going to stop right there for just one second. I just want to say this really clearly, and that is a lot of people really try to fit in the fact that they think that this is talking about Roman Catholicism. They really try to fit that in. And so what they, but what they do is I believe they take this part of the scripture and twist it to try to prove something. Because this doesn't, this is not just talking about Roman Catholicism. And I want to show you why in just a second. First of all, it says here, I've got to find it. The seven heads are seven mountains. It doesn't say seven hills. People have called Rome the city of seven hills. But the truth is, is there's like 10 hills in Rome. The tallest one is 85 foot above sea level, 85 to 100 feet above sea level, so it's not very tall. It's a hill. Mountains in scripture typically speak of nations or empires. <clears throat> and uh, then it says there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet to come. So uh, verse 10 is saying verse 9 in a new way. It's the same thing, but it's stated doubly. So uh, the seven mountains on which the woman sits, then he says there are also seven kings. Again, it, they both refer to empires most likely. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. Okay, so that seems really confusing. <clears throat> and uh, let me find it here. Because I don't want to misquote myself. So, the, I've been doing some studying on this because I was confused about it. And I really wanted to, to give you guys the best that I could find. And if the seven heads represent seven kingdoms, that makes sense. And it says five have fallen, five have, right? So at this time when John wrote this, we're talking Babylon, Egypt, Greece, Assyria, and the Medo-Persian have fallen. And it says one is, at the time he wrote this, that would be Rome, and the other has not yet come, is the reign of the Antichrist during this time. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. So that means, you know, he's going to, to last the seven years during the tribulation. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. So he is going to then reign in the eighth and is of the seven. So he's, he started in the seven. But now he does away with religion, and he is reigning as the eighth, and, it says, and is going to perdition. So he's going to be eternally judged 
forever. Verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. I just want to stop right there. Actually, let me read verse 15, because this proves what I was saying about that it's not just Roman Catholicism. It says, then he said to me, the waters which you saw, remember that, that the harlot was sitting on waters and on the, the beast. It says, where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. The truth is, as this is judgment against all empty, false, idolatrous religions. All of them. There are going to be, at the rapture, all people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all believers will be raptured. That's going to include people, some people, from Calvary Chapel, from the Baptist, from the Catholics, from the Presbyterian, from the Methodist, from everybody who has put their their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have a genuine relationship with him will be raptured. And it's going to be the same with the false religion is that people from every faith unite together in one religion and they're judged. You see it here. People from all nations, right? People from uh, uh, of different tongues, right? So pe- internationally, we're talking here. So this is... I don't think that we can say that it's representing Roman Catholics. Uh, there will be some Roman Catholics there, I'm sure, who did not have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that one more time. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. All right, going back to this section about the ten horns, which you saw are ten kings or ten kingdoms who have received no kingdom as of yet. So that means that at the end time, during these last three and a half years of the tribulation, religion has been, the false religion has been destroyed or is about to be destroyed. These ten nations rise up in support of seemingly support of false religion and of the Antichrist. They're of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast, it says in verse 13. And of 14, it says they will make war with the lamb, so they're going to come against the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus. Do they win? The lamb wins. Right? The ten, the, all of the different nations that come together to try to, to destroy the Lamb, they do not win. There is no way that they win. Verse 16 says, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. I want you to think about this for a second. 
So the very ones that pretended to support false religion turn against her, eat her flesh, devour her, burn her up, so it's gone. They all come against the lamb. Jesus wins. He's victorious, of course. Right? We knew that. That's not a surprise to any of us. But the interesting thing here is how God moved in their heart to fulfill his purpose. Did you see that? God moved in the hearts of people that do not know him in order to fulfill his purpose. Do you guys know what sovereignty means? Sovereignty. That God sovereignly has the ability to move situations and people and guide things. Don't think for one second, just because things are, are, seem to be going crazy, you don't think for one second that God has fallen off the throne. Don't think for one second that he isn't in control or that he doesn't know what's going on. You need to realize that he is taking us to the cusp. He is taking this world to the cusp. The rapture first, then the tribulation, right? Then the second coming, the millennial reign. I mean, it is all coming, and God knows what he's doing, and he knows how to do it. We believe in God. We believe in the, the, the mission that he has. Don't ever think that somehow he has stopped seeing you, stopped seeing your situation. Don't think for one second that he is not able to touch and heal and change because he is able Verse 18 says, and the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So that woman again is Babylon and represents in chapter 17 this global worldwide religion. All right, I want to talk about why God hates religion. Why does God hate empty religion and religious systems uh, because it's a lie, first of all. It's a lie. Religious systems are set up to make uh, people think that they don't need God in order to survive and they don't need God in order to, uh, they don't have to answer to God. It's a lie. And so God hates empty religion because it leads people astray. And I want you to think about our own lives right now. Are we just religious or are we having a genuine relationship with God? Are we being sincere and authentic or have we been led astray? Are you a real believer or are you going through the motions for some reason or maybe you, you know you've never even put your faith and trust in Jesus, but you come to church because it makes you feel better or it makes you somehow feel like you're ticking off a box. The truth is that we are born with a sin nature. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it doesn't even mean, you know, even if you're a really good person, you're a sinner because you were born with that sin nature. And God wants to save you. He wants you to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
He wants to forgive you of that sin and have a relationship with you. No one can work their way up. Did you know that? You can't do enough good things to work your way up to heaven. We don't do good things to win salvation. We become saved. It's a free gift from God when we put our faith and trust in him. And then he changes the way we act, the choices we make. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And I want to tell you right now that religious people are the most legalistic and judgmental people that I know. Religious people think that they have to be good and they have to live by a certain uh, way and they have to do things just right and they become very legalistic and pretty soon everybody has to do their hair just like them. Everybody has to dress just like them. Nobody can have a tattoo. Nobody can do anything. If they have any obvious sin in their life, they're, they're horrible people. And you know what we do? Is we think, man, if you are not just like me, you're filled with the demon. It gets crazy. People get crazy, like flat out of their mind. If you're not just like me, if you don't think like me and act like me and look like me, you're bad. And I don't want anything to do with you. That's what religious people do. They become their own standard for what is right. What's our standard for what's right? What's our standard? Jesus is our standard. The word of God is our standard. He changes us. He, we partner with him. Yes, we do. Uh, we, we submit to him. We surrender to him. And he begins to change us. But I want to tell you, no amount of good deeds that you do will save you. It has to be a relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't want to be those religious people that are talking about others. Um. Religion produces hypocrites. Religion produces hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? I talked about this last night at a class. Um, you know the, the mask, the drama mask, one's prowling like this and one's like this, right? And, and that's the same word. It comes from the same word for hypocrite because a hypocrite is somebody who wears a mask. They act like they got it all together and like they're perfect. And they're judging others silently or sometimes not silently. What's the difference between a hypocrite then and just a human being who sometimes struggles? The mask. A human being that sometimes struggles says, man, I am struggling. Would you pray with me? Would you pray for me? If we're not doing that and we're acting like everything's wonderful, we're lying to ourselves because we all have areas in our life that need help. In religion, man puts himself at the top and God at the bottom. Man puts himself at the top. It's about what we want, about who we are and what we do, and God at the bottom, or Christ at the bottom. You know, um, I've done this before. I've done it before. I have wanted to maintain a position or I've wanted to look like I am the smartest guy or the best guy or whatever. And so I have been jealous with other people. I've even thought, man, I don't want them to have 
the ability to do that. I don't want them to do that because I want people to think that I am better at that or whatever. And what am I doing? I'm putting myself at the top and Jesus at the bottom. Because Jesus has a plan. Jesus has a plan for my life, for your life, for ministry, for everything, for your family, for your kids. If, you're, if God is calling one of your children to become a missionary or to go somewhere or do something, are you going to stand in their way because it's going to hurt your feelings and make you sad? I'm telling you right now, mom, you can't manipulate your child out of the will of God. What's the matter with you? Stop it. Stop that nonsense. You know what you wanted more than anything else. You have prayed that child's whole life that they will follow Jesus with all their heart. You have prayed that their whole life. And then when they do, what happens? Are you going to let Jesus be at the top? Or are you going to put yourself up there or your feelings up there? It's, it's just our human nature, right, where we want to look spiritual, but really there's stuff going on in us. And that religion causes us to get things flipped around. We don't want to be religious. We want to be authentic. We want to be genuine believers. Religion builds man's kingdom instead of building God's kingdom. Religion leads to death and eternal separation from the loving favor of God. Ultimately, that's where empty religion leads. Death and separation from the loving favor of God. Where a relationship with Jesus leads to life and vitality and realness, genuineness. I'm gonna ask a rhetorical question. What would you rather be Religious or real? You'd rather be real. We all would. The real thing, a real believer, having surrendered our life to Jesus and say, God, whatever you want. I know my feelings won't always be right. I know I'm going to make mistakes, but God, you can right this ship. You can turn things around. You can help me to see things correctly and be the man or woman that you have called me to be. And God, I need you. I need you. Amen. I want to ask you right now, if any of you, you don't have to bow your heads or anything, you can just look at me, but if any of you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this is a wonderful opportunity to do that. And what that looks like is basically you just recognize your need for him. You recognize that you're a sinner, that you need to give your life over to God, and you need to give him everything. You surrender to him. You ask him to come into your life. You just surrender. But it, it looks like this. God, I can't do this on my own. What I heard tonight, I understand. I have to have a relationship with you, and that's what I want. You just say that in prayer to God. You say, I believe you, Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. And I want to tell you, if you're a believer tonight and you think that you have been going the religious route more than a genuine relationship, you can fix that right now. You can fix that by crying out to God and asking him to change your heart, 
to help you be authentic and real, to stop the play acting, stop pretending to be perfect to yourself or other people, and just accept that God loves you exactly as you are. He wants to, lo- uh, to, to love you and use your life exactly as you are, and then he will change you as you walk with him. But you need to surrender to him. You need to go back to him. You need to apologize, right? You need to ask for forgiveness. Now let's, let's bow our head and close our eyes. And first I'm gonna talk to people who feel like they don't know Jesus. They don't have a relationship with him yet. If that's you, would you do me a favor and just lift your hand up where you are? Just lift your hand up so I can pray with you. Is there anybody out there that says, Pastor Jim, that's me. I don't have a relationship with God, but I want one. Is there anybody? Is there anybody here tonight that says, Pastor Jim, I'm a believer, but I realize that the genuineness of my faith has taken a hit, that I am not being genuine with myself, with God, with others. And I'm asking God to change that tonight. Is there anybody here who says, that's me, Pastor Jim? I see your hand. Is there anyone else? I see your hand. All right. Well, would you pray with me right now? Just in your heart, agree with me. Father, we come to you. And the first thing we want to do is ask you to forgive us of our sin. Help us, God. Help our hearts to be set on you, our minds to be set on you. Help us to desire and crave the things of God instead of the things of the world, people's favor. Forgive me for my pride. I want to lay that down. I just want to admit that I need you, I need you, I need you. Oh God, fill me up again. Please fill me. I surrender my life anew to you. Thank you for the work you're doing in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.